Hey, writers, join our first draft weekly writers club. We meet every Tuesday from 12 to 1 Eastern time. For more information, go to writingclassradio.com and click on the classes tab. This is Writing Class Radio. I'm Andrea Askowitz, the teacher of the class. Today, I'm your host. And I'm Allison Langer, a student in the class. Writing Class Radio is for people who love and get inspired by true personal stories, which is everybody. And it's also for people who want to learn a little bit about how to write their own stories, which is also everybody, or at least everybody I know. Today we're talking about getting into someone else's shoes, which is different than getting into someone else's knickers. I realize that's really not funny in the wake of this election with all this talk of pussy grabbing. But now that I'm thinking about the election, which I haven't been able to stop thinking about, I want to talk about how writing a good story and getting comfortable with the results of this election require the same mammoth effort in understanding other people, an effort that I'm failing at right now. What I'm talking about is understanding another person's point of view. You have to figure out what motivates the people in your stories especially the people in your life who have hurt you. You also have to figure out what motivates you. Why do you act the way you act? You can't write a real, honest story if you don't figure that out. Last weekend, I taught at the Sanibel Island Writers Conference, and I sat in on a class taught by Stephen Elliott. If you don't know Stephen Elliott, oh my God, read him right now. He's published seven books and directed two movies. He's the founding editor of the online magazine The Rumpus, which is a really excellent literary magazine. And he's the senior editor of Epic Magazine, also excellent. Also, he's a really cool guy. After his class, I cornered him with my microphone and asked him a few questions about our job as memoir writers. Here he is. Stephen, you said something so interesting about how in literature, in memoir, in life, there are no bad guys. And I'd love for you to talk to me for a second about that concept. Well, I mean, I don't know that I've met anybody that thinks they're a bad person. Uh, And I I don't, I haven't met too many people who are only good people either. Everybody's part hero and part villain. And uh, most people know that intuitively but sometimes in our writing, we get so angry at somebody that we decide to portray them as strictly a villain. And we forget that somebody loves them, that they're capable of love, that they do good things. We, f- we don't look at the reasons for why they do what they do. Um, and so we just paint them as evil, and that's just never an accurate portrayal of anybody. And so it comes off as false because you're not really exploring that person's character. I mean, I guess it's kind of like the idea that we talked about was that, you know, nobody ever starts it. Like, if you're in a fight with somebody, um, they don't think they started it. When I was a war correspondent and I was interviewing people in a war zone, I could never find the person that was started it. Everybody was always reacting to everybody else. And so if you can't figure out what the other person is reacting to, then you can't write about them honestly. If you think somebody started it, then you're not being honest. If you think you're a good guy and they're a bad guy, then you're not being honest. Um... You have to really question all of your assumptions um, and uh, and you have to keep exploring your own motivations and and admitting to yourself that you can also be wrong about things uh, in order to 
right honestly about something. And, you know, since it's a process of self-knowledge, you're never totally honest because you're always changing. So honesty is always a quest. It's not actually, it's not a place you arrive at. It's a place you strive toward. And that's forever. And that's the job of a a memoirist or an essayist. Yeah. If you think you're the good guy and he or she is the bad guy, you haven't gotten to the truth yet. Because no one ever started the fight. Of course not. Everyone's just defending themselves. That's what we all think. Thank you, Stephen Elliott, for that. So to get to the real truth, I asked our students to try to figure out the motivations of the people in their lives, either by writing from that person's point of view or by putting themselves in that person's position. First up is Chaplin. Chaplin is a student in our class who told the story in episode 15 about struggling with gender identity. Ask yourself this. How do you envision yourself growing old, as a woman or as a man? Here's Chaplin. My father is currently living in an inpatient residential rehab for those who are indigent. His drug of choice are painkillers and alcohol. It wasn't entirely his fault. Addiction runs in our family. That's what I've been hearing for the longest time. I blamed him for tearing our family apart, and I blamed him for all of the countless nights where my mother and I hid in my bedroom in the house where I used to live. I blamed him for sending me off to college without any money in my pocket, even though he had been sitting on an inheritance of $300,000, which was gone by the time I turned 17. I can say I don't love you. No, I don't, don't, don't. He used to come home and take his shirt off, barge into the room that my mother and I were patiently waiting for him in, and I could see that his eyes were completely bloodshot. Hi, honey, he would say, slurring his words barely coherent. He would come out of the shower and wrap his arms around me. I loved my father, but this made me cringe, the thought of him touching me when he was totally dead behind the eyes. When confronted about drinking, he would say, you know, I work hard, you guys. I work so damn hard. I put food on the table, and I just don't need this. Come on, guys, come on. It would only be once I was older that I would begin to see my father as a person and not a parent. My father was an arborist, a tree doctor. He spent his days working in the boiling hot Miami sun, climbing trees that were 100 feet tall, dragging branches that weighed twice his body weight towards a chipper. He would be drenched in sweat and completely sunburned. He was a hardworking man and his line of work wasn't exactly easy. And after working for him the summer that I turned 17, I understood how sore and achy my body felt. After just one day, I could understand why he wanted to kill the pain afterwards. Now here's Allison, who's written a lot of stories about her ex-boyfriend, Gerald. In episode 13 of our podcast, Allison writes about the time he stood her up on New Year's Eve. After listening to that story, you might think Gerald was a dick. But here, Allison tells it the way Gerald may have seen it. Hey, Chris. Went out with that chick from the gym. Remember that older one? She's hot. Gave me a blowjob on the paddleboard. Fucked her in a vacant house on the waterway. Dude, you're missing out. That married shit ain't for me. Now she's calling and you know my family would disown me if they knew I was hanging with a Jewish woman who had kids on her own. How would I bring around my family? So I'm going to keep it casual. Just sex after work. (laughs) 
Hey Chris, Allison's pissed. She planned a dinner with some friends of hers and I'm not going. I think she's in love with me. Dude, she leaves me notes on my car with hearts and shit. I like her and all, but she's old. I want my own kids, maybe. She's cool and all, and I like hanging out with her, but she wants more. She wants she wants me to hang out with her, her kids and her dad. Well, the man's cool and all. I like him, but that shit ain't me. The sex rocks and fuck, older chicks are awesome, but my family would freak. That would be it. I'd be out. Hey Chris, so we're done. I left. I got I got Dana. Dana's hot and young. I could I could really be with this girl. But I miss Allison. She got me. I just like being with her. She made me smoothies in the morning, gave me massages. Listen to me. Dana's hot and all, but You're listening to Writing Class Radio. I'm Andrea Askowitz. We're talking about stepping into someone else's shoes, which is our job as writers. It's also the reason we read and listen to podcasts, because we want to experience someone else for a while. I'm here with Allison, who, unlike me, is actually pretty good at figuring out her shit and figuring out the motivation of others. She told me about an experience she had last weekend teaching at the Explorers in Calistoga, California. This woman raises her hand and says, um, so are you asking us to write memoir? And I was like, well, yeah, I mean, we're writing about our lives, these personal things. We've been doing that all weekend. Like, where did I wanted to be like, did I mumble? Like, but I didn't want to be rude, you know, because here I'm the teacher and people are looking up to me like to. So the whole place is looking at me like. Does she not know she's teaching memoir? Does she know what memoir is? Like, I just was like, and we had this, like, stare at each other. And I was trying to think, like, how, what can I say? I don't want to be harsh. And I was looking at this woman, and she was bald, um, thin. She had told me previously that she had just been through her third round of chemo and was really hopeful that um, it was going to kill the breast cancer and everything. And she... Um, was staring at me and I wanted to be gentle and I was trying to think like why is she asking me this like yeah, like what was coming up for you like what what were you thinking that she yeah. was doing I was like why is she is she doubting me like did I say something wrong do I not know that I'm teaching memoir like I was really like shit did I is there a difference between telling a true story about ourselves and memoir did I not use the right word like what the fuck like I was like oh no these people are gonna think I'm an idiot so anyway, I, I I just took that moment to really try to understand her and to see where it was coming from. And then I understood, like, she needed to be just more than just a woman with cancer. She wanted to be known as a writer, a smart, intelligent writer. And at that moment, I was okay. And I was like, yes, we're writing memoir. Okay, cool. I love that you understood that she needed to be seen as more than just that woman with cancer. She needed to show the class that she was a smart writer person. She knew the word memoir. Yeah. Now I do, too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Oh, my God. But here's the thing. I, I want to tell you about how I've be, been such a failure at stepping out of my own brain and and heart and, like, understanding other people. And I've been totally trying this for months. But I've been having trouble with my friend Esther, who has been, like, one of my best friends in the world for, like, I don't know, the last like seven or eight years. And in the last few months leading up to this election, she has put stuff up on Facebook kind of like arguing for the inferiority of women. 
She's put on Facebook these really mean things about how Donald Trump is the only person capable of obliterating, like literally bombing the fuck out of the world to save us. And I have, tr- I, I, I don't know what to do. Like, I know I need to step out and step into her moccasins and try to understand her and like sort of give love to her. But I don't know that I can. But that you haven't thus far. It's just been a brawl back and forth, the two of you. Yeah. I mean, we have been arguing. I've tried to be open-minded with her. I've tried to explain to her how her posts hurt my feelings. I've tried to take responsibility for my feelings. And I've even tried to consider what she... She must be so, so afraid. She must be so hurt. But I don't know, honestly... I don't know that I'm ever going to be able to forgive her. I really don't. I don't know that I'm ever going to be able to to like her again. Okay, but the point of this episode is to try to understand at this point each other's point of view because there are people that we love that took an opposing stance. Well, I'm not done with the story, the story that I'm writing, the story that's in my head, obviously, because I haven't been able to figure out literally like what is wrong with me that I can't understand Esther. Well, I think that's a good question. Yep. I'm just saying I'm not there yet. I don't know that I'll ever be there. I hope I will be. I think you will be. Because you're searching for it, and that's the important thing, is that we need to keep searching until we understand that. Because until we understand that, we don't have a story. I, I have wasted years With worry and with the fear then my life's going nowhere And I, I don't have a clue What I'm gonna do That makes me so scared Our next storyteller is a new student in our class, Yadira Peralta. Yadira did the hard work of figuring out the motivations of a character in her story, in her life, who hurt her. When my brother Armando was hit by a car, I didn't feel anything for a really long time. Not when my sister charged into my linguistics class at FIU to whisper it into my ear. Not on the ride to the hospital when our younger brother told us that Armando had been struck while crossing I-95. Not even when we approached Ryder Trauma Center. The three of us arrived just in time to catch my mother exiting the building to then collapse on the sidewalk. My brother and sister rushed forward to pick her up. Where was I? There are things I remember from the seven days my brother was in a coma. The sharp and invasive hospital smells, alcohol, latex, and his heavily bandaged head. When Armando's doctor described his fractured skull and the way it was barely containing his swelling brain, I pictured the way I eye often and impatiently slip eggs into boiling water. The sudden crack and the escape of some whites. I remember my mother alternately holding his hand gently and then insistently patting it as if trying to beckon him awake. 
she too alternated between confidence and absolute despair. When calm, she said she would take him home and nurse him back to health. The doctors, however, assured us that if he lived through the brain swelling, there was no telling what shape he would be in. The one thing I really remember is the impatience I felt toward my mother. People die, I thought. People die. I've always thought myself not just compassionate and sensitive, but overly sensitive. Yet, about five days into his coma, when they declared Armando brain dead, I was the first to soberly suggest that we accept things and take him off life support, donate his organs. Sometimes when I held my mother as she sobbed into my chest, she would declare that if her son died, she wanted to die too. I intellectually understood her grief that she was maybe blinded by it. He was 32, but she remembered her pregnancy and his infancy. It must have been a strange thing to carry a child and give birth to it, to have it grow into a man larger and stronger than you, and to have that man break. I understood this, but it didn't touch me, and neither did her grief, and her wish for death to be away from the rest of us. That really hurt. Didn't the rest of us, didn't I matter? During that week, which fell at the end of the semester, my English professor would not allow me to take an incomplete. So I spent Armando's week in the hospital, shuttling back and forth between the college library and the hospital. I had to do a film adaptation of Henry V, Act Four, which centers around a battle. We were told to get creative, to allow the play's themes to shine through via costuming and set pieces. Much of my visual adaptation was an amalgamation of every sci-fi and samurai film I'd ever seen, the ones I grew up watching with Armando. I still have a copy of that book. King Henry V gives a speech before the class. Two lines of that speech are underlined in the book. For he today that sheds blood with me shall be my brother. Armando's name originates from the German Hermann, which is supposed to mean army man or soldier, but Hermann looks and sounds to me like the Spanish for brother, hermano. Armando was eight years older than me, one of three boys from my mother's first marriage. I remember following him around like a puppy when I was very small. He was fun, always cracking jokes, always making things with his hands, fake bats to hang from the bat bedroom ceiling, a miniature soccer field with miniature players. One of my first clear memories of him is when I was about three, of his forcing me down on the floor and sitting on my chest. There were other memories, other times of this forcing me down. Sometimes, so he could sit on my legs and tickle me until it hurt, his fingers digging hard into me. Sometimes he would hold a pillow down on my face to smother me for what seemed like a very long time. Sometimes he would take the pillow away, let me catch my breath as the world swam around me, and then he would bring the pillow down again. Sometimes he would kiss me, like I now know as making out, his tongue in my mouth, and he would even call me his wife. Sometimes he would just lie on top of me, for a very long time, his entire long body crushing mine. 
Armando didn't have to threaten me not to tell. My parents were both young and overwhelmed with their combined family of five, soon six kids, that any complaint seemed like an empty and annoying cry for attention. My parents argued often, yelled after the baby came. When I told my mother, I was often interrupting some conversation with an aunt or a friend, and she would turn to me, seemed to hear me, but then she would send me away. We walked on eggshells when my father wasn't out with friends drinking. If we angered him, drunk or sober, he'd take it out on our mom. Sometimes he'd take his anger out on Armando. He hated Armando, it seemed. Because my father was inexperienced with children when he married my mother, and because Armando was too hyperactive, but also, also because he had a few times caught him climbing into my crib at night when I was still a baby. My mother, to this day, refuses to believe this. I usually tell people that my early years were the best of my life. I'm not lying either. I felt loved because I had five siblings and so many aunts, uncles, and cousins. And even as a child, I appreciated the natural wonder of Honduras, the ring of mountains around the capital city, the Milky Way, which was still visible at night in our front yard, the coral reef in my grandparents' backyard. But I also refused to sleep alone. I feared the dark, and I had night terrors, and often dreamed of drowning or being rendered speechless, unheard by my parents. Is this what compartmentalization is? Knowing something is true and yet going through life as if it isn't? At Armando's hospital bedside, I knew that I had spent most of my life around him either feeling discomfort or anger, even into adulthood. But that and the reasons why had lived within me, not as memories, but as submerged and invisible happenings. I cried once at the hilltop cemetery in La Ceiba, Honduras. As he lowered his casket far down into the ground, next to the plot my mother had purchased for herself, this invisible mass of pain arose in my body and released itself as an overpowering and uncontrollable sob. It was neither cathartic nor cleansing, nor whatever else they say about letting it out. When I returned from Honduras, just in time to begin my last year of college, I gave myself to art. I took electives in drawing, photography, and poetry. I spent 20 hours a week in the darkroom obsessively processing film and printing black and white photos of my South Beach neighborhood, my musician and skateboarding friends, and vistas taken during late-night bike rides without flash. Just the camera sitting there on a cheap tripod, aperture open, taking in whatever it could in the low light. None of these people knew my family. I didn't have to explain a death and my unusual response to it. Poetry was a different thing. The work had to be about something real, something true. Robert Bly wrote a book I loved at that time, Leaping Poetry. He said, let's imagine a poem as if it were an animal. When animals run, they have considerable flowing rhythms. Also, they have bodies. An image is simply a body where psychic energy is free to move around. I tried to write a poem about Armando. 
In this poem, I had him swimming. I tried to imply death with day darkening into night and blackened waters. My poetry professor's feedback was beautiful, like a black and white photograph, but what does it really mean? This poem was a failure, machine more than animal. I've only tried writing about Armando twice more since that attempt in my college poetry class about 15 years ago. I was asked to write an essay about poetry in the Olympics for the Los Angeles Review of Books. I decided to weave in Armando because he played baseball and soccer and he was in his teens obsessed with weightlifting. Armando is a subject doomed the essay. I spent days writing in circles around the idea of the fragility of the human body and that was important and interesting perhaps but it was also false because I was keeping some truth submerged. The other time is now, this essay, how am I doing? Do all stories have to be written? Probably not, but I am a believer in the power of naming things. The author W.G. Sebald talks about growing up in the seas of silence of post-war Germany. When he first encountered photographs of the Holocaust as a child, no one had the words to explain what he was seeing. What becomes of memories or important truths when we don't work through them with words? My brother's cruelties did not destroy me. They shaped me in ways I regret and in ways that I find invaluable. Trapped in silence, it made me cling to these things more. Books, words, and images. I love art so passionately because it's gotten me through everything. And I don't know if I've yet succeeded at writing this story, but I know that my interest in words has at least enabled me to say, I had a brother. His name was Armando. He died violently and stupidly. He ended up an alcoholic, maybe because his own life was hard, maybe because his father was murdered when he was so young, and maybe because his young grieving mother my mother was often away, maybe because his mother, whom he loved so much, married a man, my father, who was cruel to him. Perhaps some of his pains were also unnamed, so he felt the need to hurt someone else, me. Armando introduced me to bad 1980s action films. I introduced him to good science fiction. He gave me Peter Sellers, and I gave him Monty Python. We both loved the Three Stooges, and most importantly, he gave me Bruce Lee, who wasn't just an action star, he was also a poet and a translator. This is one of his translations. Let us then take a lump of clay wet it, pat it, and make an image of you and an image of me. Then smash them, crash them, and with a little water, knead them together. And out of the clay, we'll remake an image of you and an image of me. Thus in my clay, there's a little of you, and in your clay, there's a little of me. But I, he puts in now. 
down this road all alone. I know where I come from. Yadira asks, do all stories have to be written? She's not sure, but she's a believer in naming things. She's a believer in trying to figure things out. So am I. We want you to try to figure things out, too. We're running a contest, and we want your story. Here's the prompt. A time you fucked up. Okay, come on. Everyone has that story. We want you to write 1,200 words or fewer, and then email the written version, either as a Word document or in the body of your email, to info at writingclassradio.com. First and second place stories will be recorded and aired on our podcast. The deadline is November 30th, so get on it. More details on our website. Writing Class Radio is produced by Andy Benoit, our new sound guy. And we still have our old sound guy, Diego Saldana Rojas, plus producer Allison Langer and me, Andrea Askowitz. Theme music by Daniel Correa. Additional music by the Man Sisters and Kevin Miles Wilson. Writing Class Radio is sponsored and recorded at the University of Miami School of Communication. This episode is sponsored by the South Beach Jazz Festival. December 7th through 11th. More info at sobijazz.com. There's more Writing Class Radio on our website, writingclassradio.com. Study the stories we study and listen to our craft talks. If you don't like the prompt I just gave you, pick one of the daily prompts from our website or follow us on Twitter at WRTG Class Radio, where we post daily prompts daily. There's no better way to understand ourselves and each other than by writing and sharing our stories. Everyone has a story. What's yours? Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundal, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network.